0: Welcome to the story of XH558, Into the Sky. Hello and welcome to the next episode of the podcast of Vulcan to the Sky. Uh, we're going to be speaking today to a gentleman who is not only an accomplished ex-RAF pilot and officer, but is one of the trustees of the, uh, the trust. Uh, I'd like to welcome Ed Jarron. Good afternoon, Ed. How are you? Good afternoon. Thank you very much for joining us today and uh, taking time out to tell us more about the Vulcan. I'm just reading a recent bio uh, that you wrote for us here at, at the trust. Apparently, being a pilot wasn't your first career choice. What was it initially that you wanted to do as a as a young man?
1: Well, the only thing I could do reasonably well when I was at school is draw. So uh, I envisaged that I would eventually do something to do with art, and. Uh, to cut long story short, I had family members who were architects, so that seemed to me to be a logical track to take. So I started off with an ambition
0: of becoming an architect. Are you still quite good at drawing as well, Ed? Well, I can still draw. <laughs> <laughs> so what was it that actually inspired this career change then? to What, what inspired you to become a pilot?
1: Well, at the time, we were living about 15 miles on the extended centre line from RAF Lucas up in Scotland. And at that time, they had hunters and javelins flying there. And they went straight over the top of the house. And I remember looking at them and thinking, you know, I wouldn't mind flying one of those for a year or two. Uh, But I thought I had not done anything about it. And I wasn't a member of the ATC. And I spoke to a few mates at school and said, you know, chances are I'm too late. Said, no, no, come along, come on Friday night, which I did, went along and uh, told them that I wouldn't mind flying those hunters. And uh, they said, well, come and join us. And I was very lucky to be put forward for a flying scholarship. And uh, after about a year and a half in the ATC, I was given a flying scholarship that allowed me to get my private pilot's license. And in fact, I was only just turned 17 at the time. I didn't have a driving license. So, uh, you know, I got my pilot's license before I got my driving license. There seems to
0: be a common occurrence there on that one.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I did it in the school Easter holidays. So I went back as something of a hero being a pilot uh, while still at school. But uh, it was a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, I'm sure it was. Yeah, Air cadets, because there was other things in there, not just the flying. That uh, there was another th- element of the ATC that you liked as well, wasn't there?
1: Well, you know, the ATC is a is a great organisation, still is, and you know, there was opportunity for uh, visiting RAF stations for shooting, in particular, which I I did enjoy. Uh, lots of uh, learning about aircraft and. Uh, aircraft systems, um, and it was it was a lot of fun, and I, I I rose to the dizzy heights of corporal in the two years I was in the ATC before I joined the Air Force.
0: Corporal before you even joined the RAF, then absolutely, <laughs> it was obviously the right path for you. So you um, so you joined the ATC. Uh, You've got your private license, as you said, at 17, uh, before you got your car license, of course. Uh, You joined the RAF because of uh, university entrance qualifications. Uh, That means that you uh, you go on to RAF Cranwell to train as an officer and a pilot. You then go to RAF Valley for your advanced training on the Nats. That must have been really exciting.
1: Terrific little aeroplane. Absolutely incredible. You could stand and look in the cockpit without climbing Climbing a ladder, which with <laughs> most aircraft you need to do. Uh, tiny little jet,
0: amazing aircraft. Very agile? Very agile, yep. So then your first posting. Can you tell us a bit more about your first posting?
1: Well, I was posted to uh, 35 Squadron on Vulcans, and the Vulcan was an airplane I'd never really thought about. I was still, my ambition was to fly single seat Hunters and uh, maybe Lightnings at the time. But uh, at the time that I went through Valley, a lot of us were going on the Vulcan because the Vulcan force was building up with the Mark II. Uh, so I was not best pleased uh, to get that posting. But, and the other problem with going on Vulcans is that you won't go in as a captain in your first tour. So you've got a co-pilot tour to do. So you're sat in the right-hand seat as a sort of a, uh, a helper rather than having your own aircraft. So it, it, obviously for a young lad with fire in his belly, that wasn't exactly what you had in mind. But I uh, got through the first tour and again, wanting to be, get on single seats, I didn't want to go for a captaincy. So I elected to become a flying instructor on jet provosts, uh, did that uh, and enjoyed it. Then I said, now then, I can go on Vulcan, uh, onto Hunter I said, no, we've got another tour for you. As it so happens, when I was at uh, Kreml, I did degree course standard in the Russian language. So I was sent after two and a half years training to Moscow for two and a half years as assistant air in Moscow. Uh, so I was a long time away from the Vulcan. I then got a posting where back to the Vulcan, and uh, <laughs> I, get, I went to talk to Air Secretaries who did all this stuff to you in those days, and said, you know, what happened to the promise of, you know, going fast jet at this point, point? and said, so, well, trouble is, you've been around for so long, but you're just about to be promoted, and if you get promoted, we're not going to put you in a Buccaneer squadron because, you know, you'd just be starting on an, on an aircraft, the aircraft you really know is the Vulcan. So go back, be a captain. And uh, you know if you're then promoted, which I was, you can become a flight commander in a Vulcan squadron, which is sounded terrific. When I got back on the jet, that's when I realized what a delightful aircraft it was because sitting there watching somebody who doesn't actually necessarily want to fly it like you do is frustrating. But when you're the captain, that, ah, that's different. Um, and I remember thinking, I wonder how fast this thing will go. And I got the pilot's notes out, and nowhere I can assure you, you get a set of Vulcan pilot's notes, you will not find VNE, the do not exceed speed. Well, that's very odd. Everything that we were told to do was procedural. You do your low level training at two fifty knots. You'd do, you'd speed up to three fifty knots for bomb runs, but nobody said what the maximum was. So I rummaged and grubbed around, and I found a secret document, which is the Vulcan released to service. And I found that actually, its its maximum speed was 420. Now that's that's better. <laughs> and uh, I tried that out at the low level, and it it was terrific. <laughs> 420 knots at low level. Yep, yep. The Vulcan was good for 420 at low level. Wow. <laughs> yeah, and. The other thing is it was enormously overpowered and at light all up weight. The, the, the weight of the airframe empty was about 100,000 pounds. And if you only had a dribble of fuel in it, you were flying around with 120,000 pounds of weight with 80,000 pounds of thrust. And that, when the aircraft is light, it would go from 0 to 40,000 feet in four minutes. And at high level, in those days, it would outturn and outclimb any fighter above 40,000 feet. And we used to do fighter affiliation with Lightnings and Hunters. Well, Hunter was run out of steam at about 30,000 feet. It wasn't a high-level airplane. The Vulcan was. And you could do great things with it. We actually got it up to 62,000 feet uh, going over the Indian Ocean, we saw a line of tropical thunderstorms ahead. Now, normally, you just go around them. And we thought, well, I wonder if we can just go over it. And this was back in the old days. <laughs> we stuffed full noise on. And um, we got up to two thousand over the top, not a problem. It was uh, an, an amazing airplane, which I came to love, I, I have to say, flying it the way I like to fly it.
0: So, reading through the bio that you did for us recently, you were saying there that going from being the right-hand seat to the left-hand seat, that's when you really... I'm, I'm assuming that's when you really fell in love with the aircraft. Oh, yes.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. No question.
0: Yeah. And, and because, obviously, you'd previously seen the Hunters and you wanted to fly the single-seater uh, yeah. fast jets, did that shift your... That's right. Loyalty, your allegiance. Sorry, that's the word I was was looking for.
1: Well, no, once I was in the left-hand seat, my allegiance was totally to the Vulcan. The other thing you realised is what a capable aircraft it was. Now, the interesting thing is, uh, in the early days of the Vulcan, its nuclear weapon was a thing called Yellow Sun, which was enormous. It was the original FGB, very big bomb. (laughs) <laughs> and <laughs> when that was in the Bombay, there was no room for anything else. Mm-hmm. Now, that was replaced with a thing called WE 177, which remained in service up until about the year 2000. And that was tiny. Mm-hmm. And you could hang that on the center hanger and put drum tanks at the front and the back, which gave the airplane the range to get airborne out of the UK. Climb to high level, drop before the Soviet early warning line, go low level down through the Soviet Union, drop your nuke, keep on going, climb out and land in Turkey. That was a, in the old days, a sort of a profile that you'd be expected to do.
0: As a, as an experienced pilot of the the Hunter, the Provost, the the, the Nats, and and one thing and another, how would you say that the Vulcan uh, does compare? To those, those, those other aircraft.
1: Well, it's a big airplane. It's a four jet. Yeah. Um, and as a four jet, it's enormously capable. But at the end of the day, my brother's a lightning pilot, and I flew in lightnings with him. And there's no question of the fact that when you put the burners in in a lightning, <laughs> that done off go. I mean mm-hmm. I, I believe it gets from not to thirty thousand feet. That's breaks off, accelerate down the runway and climb. It gets to thirty thousand feet in thirty seconds. Wow. And that is awesome. <laughs> now the Vulcan is never going to be in that category. But for a large aircraft it was remarkably able and maneuverable. And of course the other thing you've got to remember is it had terrific capability as I have said to you Hmm. um now my brother being on lightnings if you really try you could empty a lightning in 10 minutes you really had to watch what you were doing with the fuel it would burn fuel like you never knew and it was good to climb up shoot somebody down turn around and then it was almost an emergency to get it back on the ground because you're out of gas now there was a limit to how much you can enjoy that, mm-hmm. if you know what I mean. And I'd thought that the capability of the Vulcan, the 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 option to take it places, we went all the way around the world in it, was a massive plus. And I I stopped aching for single seats. Maybe it was a sign that I was getting a bit older as well. So
0: <laughs> you liked the journey rather than the speed. Is that, is that way the way it was going? Well, not rather than, but as much as. <laughs> <laughs> You're talking there about um you've been around the world in it. You, you mentioned in your bio about uh, Goose and Western Rangers. You would fly yep. to Goose Bay in Labrador, then Omaha, the US Midwest. um Was this all part and parcel of the exercises that were carried out frequently over in America for the low-level practices?
1: Yeah. If, if you like, it was a way of exporting noise. Right. When you think of it, we had a quite a big air force in those days and lots of jets roaring around at low level. And uh, if you went to Goose Bay, just to the north of Goose Bay was the Outback. And... Uh, you could get airborne, go down to low level, and set off, and for two hours, you would never see any sign of civilization. So it allowed you to go out there and make as much noise as you like, fly as fast <laughs> as you like, and and it, it was we were exporting noise. And the same thing in the, the Nevada desert, flying out of uh, Omaha.
0: Wow, wow! You didn't do a Martin Withers and fly through the the Grand Canyon, did you? No. <laughs> I <laughs> never did. <laughs> and I was I was off
1: Vulcans by the time uh, the Falkland Islands came along, and and Martin did his bit with Black Buck.
0: Mm. So t- actually, that's just led me nicely to the next question. Because Black Buck is the thing that Vulcan is remembered for more than anything out of its whole career, and it's got Absolutely. a great career when you start reading about the aircraft, etc. Um. Is there, apart from the Black Book, is there anything else that sticks out for you with what the Vulcan achieved?
1: In operational terms, when I was on my first tour, we were the nuclear deterrent. We didn't have Polaris submarines or, or Tridents in those days. And that meant that on every Vulcan base, there were three squadrons on each base. And each squadron had one aircraft minimum at any one time on QRA, quick reaction alert. So three aircraft on every base, and there are a lot of Vulcan bases in those days, were at 15 minutes readiness to launch. So we, as a crew, you, there are 10 crews in the squadron. So every 10th day, you'd be the QRA crew. So you'd live in flying kit. You could go around the station, provided you could get back to the aircraft within 15 minutes. So we had a little crew coach. And uh, we had studied the targets and we did this day in the art. And it was quite sobering as a young kid of 21, 22, to look at your mates and say, are we actually gonna do this? And you got to think it through that there you are with a nuclear weapon on the airplane sitting outside in the middle of Rutland where I now live (laughs) and you're going to launch and you're going to drop it in the Soviet union. And I think all of us went through the process of thinking it through. And the whole business about it was, it was deterrence. We were there to stop them doing it to us. And the deal was, if you nuke us, we will nuke you back. And, uh, I think we all believed in it. And if you didn't believe in it, then you should go and see the boss the next morning and say, look, I'm sorry, I can't do this. And that was, if you like, the Vulcan's contribution to the Cold War, to the stability that existed, because at the height of the Cold War, there were 65,000 weapons on each side. Can you imagine that? Wow. If the if the lid came off mm. and it, everybody in the nuclear chain had to be dedicated to doing the job, so that was part of Vulcan history. We never got airborne, thank God, because, because we succeeded. Mm. The, the Soviets believed us, and we believed them.
0: So you you seriously do think that just having the Vulcan squadron and the and the capability of carrying those huge atomic weapons, nuclear weapons, sorry, was definitely the right. It, w- it was definitely the right de- deterrent for. For the Russians
1: it was it absolutely was and of course it was replaced as a deterrent by first of all Polaris and then Trident which is of course what we've got now hmm. the Vulcan still had its nuclear capability but uh, that was more of a supporting role hmm. in a tactical role
0: so moving forward a little bit here um we obviously the Vulcans are grounded of the vulcan the five five eight is one of the last aircraft to be grounded from the Vulcan display force. What did you think when you heard the news that there was the chance of a Vulcan coming back to the sky?
1: I was delighted, and uh, I was there when we got it airborne for the first time uh, after refurbishment, and uh, it was very emotional, I have to tell you.
0: I can imagine so
1: yeah. And a great sadness that, uh, you know, we weren't able to go on beyond 2015,
0: but that's another story. Mm, Absolutely. So were you involved in the restoration of 558 then at all? Not directly.
1: Um, I became a a director really once it was flying. Um, I, I really do look forward to giving the Vulcan a permanent long term home. Yeah. It's an awful pity we had to move out the hangar that we had because we were doing, I think, a great, a great business mm. in the hangar, and we we were able to preserve the aircraft and preserve its history. Looking forward, we want not only to look backwards but also to look forwards. And what we're hoping is to put a hangar together that will hold uh, the Vulcan. It'll have our uh, Canberra that we're refurbing. And it will also uh, be a base for uh, educating the next generation and to encourage them to follow STEM subjects at school. And uh, I think one of the centerpieces of this will be the green hub. At the moment, we are all under pressure for environmental reasons to reduce the the impact of aviation and uh what we want to do is to make our contribution to it so as well as being a a shrine for the vulcan's history we'll be fighting to see if we can help in the process of making aviation greener
0: and will there be hands-on exhibitions there for young engineers, future engineers to come and and play around with things and get a feel for uh, aviation engineer?
1: Absolutely. There'll be artifacts and there'll be presentations. And, you know, it's very interesting looking at the challenge of uh, making aviation completely green. When you think about it, the most efficient way of fueling an airliner, is to put kerosene in it. If you put anything else, if it's electric, an electric power source, it weighs megatons, and the whole thing about airplanes has got to be streamlined and light. Mm. If you want to refuel it with, for example, hydrogen, hydrogen tanks, pound for pound, are very much larger than kerosene tanks. And to make the hydrogen, you've got to burn an awful lot of fuel one way or another. Mm. So, you know, to get the the most, uh, I think, the best way to make hydrogen is through electrolysis. That takes massive amounts of electricity and that in turn burns fuel somewhere, whether it be wind or or solar. So it's a massive problem. And if it may mean that the shape of airplanes in future have got to change in order to make them big enough for hydrogen tanks, <laughs> so they, they will look different. Um, it's this is These are only a few headlines, if you like. It's a mm. fascinating subject, and it's something that we will be delighted to be at the heart of and to pass on to generations of young people coming through.
0: Well, it'll be nice to see the hangar up again, nice to see 558 underneath a, a permanent roof. And it'd be great to see some young engineers coming through from that. Yeah, absolutely marvellous. Ed, thank you very much for your time. It's been a great pleasure speaking to you.
1: Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you, and I have enjoyed reminiscing about my time on the Vulcan, so thank you very much for the opportunity to do that. All the best, Ed. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
0: If you'd like to support Operation Safeguard, Vulcan to the Sky Trust appeal to raise money to build a hangar at Doncaster Sheffield Airport. Please visit vulcantothesky.org.